Valley, and I'd like to thank you guys for uh, having me in here this morning. Glad to be filling in for Mike today as he's getting uh, a little bit of a rest and uh, some time off, he and Kelly are. So very thankful to be here with you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Brock Ashley, and I attend Parkland Chapel. And today we are going to be uh, discussing a topic that is near and dear to all of our hearts, and that is waiting. Don't we all love to wait? Isn't it great? You know, to get a wait uh, at the stoplight behind that guy that doesn't seem to know that the gas pedal is on the right. To wait at the cell phone store, which for some reason it takes three hours to do anything. I'm not really sure why. Uh, to get a wait for our food, right? It's called fast food, not take an hour to get my food. But we all just love this idea and this concept of waiting. So uh, having ripped off a line from Tom Petty, uh, God love Tom, thank you for him, and uh, we're going to talk about the weight being the hardest part. So uh, with that, we're also going to attempt to tie this into our Christmas story at the same time. And I'm sure most of you know, and, and maybe you, you know more than I did as a kid growing up in church, that the Christmas story didn't actually start with Jesus in the manger. That in fact, the Christmas story started much earlier than that and has its foundations in the very foundation of the earth. So if you would, uh, rather than turning to Luke chapter 2, the traditional Christmas story spot, we're going to look at John chapter 1 to begin our time together this morning. So if you go to the Gospel of John and look at chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to read a little bit from there. And it says here that in the beginning the word what in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then if you fast forward to verse 14, and the word, that being Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning was the word. Jesus being that part of the triune Godhead. And if you want to flip back to 1 Peter, to the epistle of Peter, go to the right, a few pages, and we're going to be in 1 Peter, and we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 18. And in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 18, Peter says that knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. So the Christmas story, rather than beginning with Jesus in a manger, actually began before creation, which is truly amazing when you think about it, because God, deciding that we were going to need a Savior, Jesus voluntarily became that salvation for us, even before he created us. That's some kind of love. Now, I know some of you, and I can tell you I love you, but if I knew all the bad things you were going to do, even before I created you, I got to tell you, I don't know that I'd want to come die for you. So that's, that's some kind of love that Jesus has for us. And that's really where this, this Christmas story began. 
And if you look at the definition of foreordained, that's a big word. Uh, I'm from Illinois, so big words scare me. But what it, what it means, uh, according to Webster, is to appoint in advance. So this goes to our idea that everything that's happening was planned from the beginning with creation. So when we're talking about this idea of waiting and how things need time to play out, we can see that, that throughout Scripture that God has got a plan, and he's got one pretty good plan. It's just going to all unfold in his time. And we read, and Jesus even points this out, that all of the Old Testament scriptures were about him. He said, you search and search through these scriptures, trying to uncover some kind of mystery, not realizing that it all points back to me. And throughout scripture, we have some uh, vague references, but then we also have some very clear references. You guys just spent some time in Daniel. And if you're in Daniel chapter 9, what Daniel finds there is he's actually visited by the angel Gabriel. Now, Gabriel's got a very interesting mission. We see each time uh, that Gabriel appears in Scripture, he's bringing a message of salvation, and that specifically of Jesus. So Gabriel appears to Mary to talk to her about uh, the child that is in her womb. And Gabriel also appears here to Daniel in a vision, and he tells Daniel that in 62 weeks and 7 weeks, that the Messiah is going to enter into Jerusalem. That's a pretty bold prediction. But he says after the time of the going out of the word for the walls to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. So if you do the math, that means exactly 483 years Jesus was going to walk into uh, Jerusalem triumphant as the Messiah. And wouldn't you know it, as God would have it, that on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, exactly 483 years from the time that the word went forth from King Cyrus that the walls be rebuilt, Jesus walked in at 32 AD, right on time. And so we get these pictures throughout the Old Testament of how God's plan is going to unfold for us. And, but the key and the challenge for us is we have to wait. We have to wait for it. It doesn't all get unfolded to us all at once. Right? So if you would turn with me then to our key text today, and really what I wanted to base everything on was Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to be starting in verse 27. <clears throat> so in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, <clears throat> beginning in verse 27, and we're going to read through 31. And it says in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, Quoting, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by God. So beginning with this verse, what the people of Israel are crying out is, our ways are just, but we're being looked past by God. So they're not questioning God and his power and his might or his strength. They're questioning how much he actually cares about what's going on in their life. Like, God, you, you can do everything, but you're not doing anything for us. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've been in that spot a lot. <laughs> where I think, oh, Lord, I'm doing my best, I'm doing everything I can, and yet you're not answering, you're not hearing any of my prayers. So let's listen to God's response, starting in verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never faints, nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. 
they shall walk and not faint. That is a glorious promise if we will do what? We will wait on the Lord. And that's really where I wanted to start. And I think that waiting on the Lord uh, really has three components that we want to look into today. And these three, these are all going to be favorites, especially starting with the first one. Uh, they're going to be patience, persistence, and perspective. So to begin with, uh, we look at patience right off the bat. And this idea of waiting and patience really is very counterculture to us. So our culture, everything about it that we just talked about when I opened up about waiting is very against what we believe and how we feel. We may not say it like that, but even from a business standpoint, uh, I know for me, in, in when I worked in corporate America, we would look for people who had a sense of urgency. We want people who are urgent about things. And we would promote people who had a sense of urgency and people who did not have a sense of urgency. We would find a way to shuffle them off to the side. So this is very counterculture for us to wait for really anything. But it all is going to begin with patience. So beginning off, we're going to look at the life of Jesus. He's a pretty good one to try to model after, after all. Uh, and we're going to see that in his life, he had patience for his calling. He had patience, and he did not have any anxiety about it. So if we turn to back to John and his gospel in chapter 2. So in John chapter 2, to set this scene a little bit, where we land here is Jesus is at a wedding feast, and he's there with some of his family, with his mother in particular. And a wedding feast for the Jewish people was a big deal. This would usually be a week-long uh, party that they would basically throw. And my wife and I, uh, over Thanksgiving, her cousin is Jewish, so we got to go to our first ever bar mitzvah. Let me tell you, these folks know how to throw a party. I mean, they've got music and games and all kinds of things. So this is the kind of thing that we're dropped into in this scene in John chapter 2 in this wedding feast. And uh, what happens is they run out of wine. Kind of a big deal if you're at a Jewish wedding feast if you have no wine. So in verse 3, uh, Jesus' mother Mary comes to him and says, they have no wine. And in verse 4, Jesus says to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, to begin with, when he, when he calls her woman, that doesn't sound very good in our uh, vernacular. It, it sounds like he's being a little off-putting to his mom. But woman, if you really went back to, this isn't a great translation, it, it would be like us saying, you know, yes, ma'am. Or it was a very proper and a, and a good way to respond to your mother when she came to you with a problem. But the key that I wanted to pull out is at the end of verse 4, he says, My hour has not yet come. So what Jesus understood better than anyone that ever walked the planet is that everything needed to be done in timing and in God's will. And the hour that hadn't yet come is it wasn't yet time for him to reveal himself as the Messiah. So the question I have for you is, could, was Jesus just as capable at 28 to begin his ministry as he was at 30? Was he just as capable at 18 as he was? at 30. So it turns out that our callings and the things that God has for us don't have nearly as much to do with age as it does to do with God and his timing. And Jesus understood this perfectly. So we've got our perfect example of which uh, I know I'm probably not going to be able to hit. But let's look at a little bit less than perfect example back at the early parts of our Bible in the life of Abraham. So if we look at the life of Abraham, and, and we start there in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, 
we've got a very big promise that was given to Abraham. And the promise that was told him in chapter 12, verse 7, was that the Lord appeared and said to Abram, at that time, Abram, before he became Abraham, to your descendants I will give this land. And there he, Abraham, built an altar to the Lord who had appeared before him. So the promise was given to Abraham that all the land, that land being the land of Canaan, this vast, beautiful, lush uh, area was going to be given to Abraham and all of his descendants. But the issue was, if you fast forward to chapter 16, 10 years later, Abraham being 75 at that time, 10 years later, Abraham still doesn't have any descendants. It's sort of hard for this inheritance to be given to your descendants if you have no descendants. So Abraham and Sarah decide together that, listen, we, we understand God's got this beautiful promise for us. But, you know, clearly what God needs is he needs a little bit of help. We should probably help God along with this idea that he's going to give our descendants uh, all this land and this great promise. So, he, so she says, Sarah, to her husband, take my handmaiden, Hagar, and take her and have a child with her, which just sounds incredibly odd to us right now that, hey, listen, take this maiden of mine and go into her and have a child, uh, you know, not something that we would see very often in our culture, but to them, this was a standard practice, that if a, a wealthy woman wasn't able to have children, that she could have essentially a surrogate that would come along and would have a child for her. So they decide they're going to help God along with his plan, because now Abraham is in his mid-80s. And that's exactly what happens. So a son is born to Hagar, and his name is Ishmael. And in uh, chapter 16, verse 12, this is the prophecy or the word of the Lord that came about Ishmael. And it said, he shall be a wild man. He was the first wild thing. Even before Charlie Sheen, he was a wild man. And his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. So the descendants of Ishmael, which are actually the Arab people, this promise was given that every hand will be against him and he shall be against everyone and he will dwell among his brethren. A very uh, prophetic promise as you look at the Middle East and all those uh, conflicts that we see right now. So what we really see is the results of the work of our flesh. When we decide we're going to step in and we're going to make something happen where God hasn't uh, made it happen yet, and we're going to put our will in there a little bit, this is the result. And it's something that has plagued the nation of Israel for thousands of years now. They've had these, uh, these conflicts with the Arab nations. But then if we look uh, just a little bit uh, further past in chapter 17, in verse 19, we see God fulfill his end of the bargain. And then uh, in verse 19 of chapter 17, and then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So God is rejecting their work of the flesh and saying, no, I'm going to fulfill the promise that I already gave you, and I'm going to do it through Sarah, and it's going to be in my timing. So at the ripe old age of 100, Abraham has a son through Sarah, and Sarah in her 90s. Amazing, but it took 25 years from that initial promise before God ever gave Isaac to Abraham. Now, it's pretty easy for us to pick on Abraham and go, boy, you didn't have enough faith, father of the faith, to be able to see this whole thing through. But I don't know about you guys, 
I can't wait 10 years on God to answer anything. I can barely wait 10 minutes. I mean, I pray, and I'm like, Lord, answer quick, hurry. I mean, I need something going on right here. But that's not at all the lesson that we learn from the life of Abraham. And that when we decide to get out of step with God, just how much we can make a mess of things. So this is where waiting on the Lord really becomes crucial to us. It becomes critical because the work of our flesh, well, frankly, it messes things up. So then if we look from the work of our flesh and this patience, if we move then to the next step and we look at persistence, let's again go back to the life of Jesus and look at his persistence. Now, if we go to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we see that in the face of scrutiny, and really in the face of certain death, because Jesus, understanding all things, knew that he was headed towards the cross. That was his mission here on earth, was to be headed towards the cross. That in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, being received up means going to Jerusalem for his imminent uh, crucifixion, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So his jaw was locked, his face was set, he was steadfast about this plan, knowing what he was going to be walking into, but Jesus was going to persist. He was going to fulfill that obligation, that calling that he had on his life. <clears throat> now, his persistence was not rooted in his own will. If you flip back just a little bit to Mark chapter 14, and in this scene, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying with his disciples. In Mark 14, uh, verse 36, is what I wanted to look at. So in Mark 14, 36, this is Jesus' prayer to the Father. As he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So the reason that Jesus could persist in the face of certain death and scrutiny is because his will was grounded in that of the Father, not that of himself. And that's really where we're at when it comes to uh, persistence. In, in when it comes to us doing the will of God, it's not supposed to be a burden, right? It's not supposed to be something that's hard, that's difficult for us to do. It's supposed to be, according to Matthew, and I'm making you flip all over, so I'm not going to ask you to flip back there. I'll do it for you. But it says in Matthew 29... Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, far too often these burdens that we feel, that we feel like we just can't do anymore, are not burdens that God put on us at all. These are burdens that we took on ourselves, and they're not always, we're not always trying to do bad, but we're trying to do ahead of God. We're trying to do too much too fast, and we're not waiting on the Lord. So it makes this persistence even more difficult. And I like the, the translation from the message, and I put it up on the screen if it's up there. Uh, and I don't often read this version of the Bible, but I do like to read uh, other versions just because it gives us some extra insight. But what verse 29 says there is, Walk with me, work with me, and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. I love that, the unforced rhythms of grace. We think about this. This is not supposed to be trying to cram the round peg into the square hole. This is supposed to be something that there is, it's not that there is no burden, but it is a shared burden. This idea of a yoke being across our backs, we're actually sharing that with Jesus, right? So um, 
looking at that, at the example of Jesus, let's then look at, again, because he is the perfect example, let's look for one that's maybe not as perfect and look at the life of David in the Old Testament. And if we were to start back in 1 Samuel chapter 24, uh, as I make my way back there, David was called at a very early age, in his early teens, to be an anointed as the king of Israel. But what transpired after that, after great victory, slaying a giant, you know, David has killed his tens of thousands. David's had a lot of victory. But what transpired then after that is then he's chased down for a decade by his father-in-law who wants to kill them. I don't know about all of you, but, you know, if, if you've got a father-in-law, he may not like you a whole lot, but I doubt that he probably wants to kill you around every corner. But that's the position David's in. So in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24, what takes place is David gets his chance at revenge. He's in the caves of Engedi, and I think it's up there on the screen if you can see it. So, uh, and by the way, this is a shameless plug for the Israel trip that Steve talked about. That picture is actually taken this past year in March at Engedi. It's this beautiful setting, this waterfall setting that's in the middle of the Judean desert. It's just out of nowhere, this beautiful area. And this is a spot that David is hiding in with his men, this beautiful desert oasis. So they're camped out there as Saul is trying to hunt him down. And Saul goes into a cave to do his business, the Bible says. He needed to use the restroom. But while he's in there, David is, and a couple of his men are able to sneak up on Saul. Completely unaware David's anywhere around. And what his uh, men encourage him to do is uh, they encourage him to kill him. Yeah, they're like, listen, the Lord has delivered Saul into your hand. This is your chance. Go take him out. Let's be done with running away. But David's answer was in verse 6 of chapter 24, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. You see, David was committed to persisting at what God had for him. And he knew it wasn't his place to kill Saul, that Saul's, Saul would be his own demise. So he very uh, uh, righteously and rightly uh, stays off this chance for revenge and to take out his enemy. But then we fast forward to the next chapter. So here's David now. They've left this area of En Gedi, and they've gone to an area of Carmel, into the sheep fields of a guy named Nabal. And as they're in the sheep fields, Nabal is getting ready to shear his sheep. And he's a rich guy. And when they have their sheep shearing, sheep shearing, that's a lot to get out on a Sunday morning. Uh, when they're doing that, they throw a big party. And so as they're, they're getting prepared for this party, David sends some of his men into Nabal to say, hey, listen, we know you're going to have a feast. We've been out here in your fields for months now or weeks. We don't know exactly how long, but we haven't touched any of your men. We haven't come up against you. We haven't taken anything away. We've actually helped protect your people. So would you mind giving us some food? And Nabal's answer is classic. If you look at, verse, at chapter 25, verse 10, this is Nabal's answer to this request. Who is David? And who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who I do not know where they are from? And David's response after being so righteous earlier is, uh, let's look down at verse 13. How does he handle this? He says, every man gird his sword. Boy, I got a lot of David in me. I mean, 
I can do a really good job at times, but once you have insulted me and ticked me off, I'm ready to gird my sword. And David says then in verse 22, May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. He is going to go out and absolutely massacre all of Nabal's men and Nabal himself. And he's headed that way, right? That's the difference in us. We can go from being so persistent and so ready to do God's will, and then the next time something happens, we're like, off with the head! That's it! I'm done! I'm just going to wipe them all out. And when it happens to us, it seems like when we're guarded and we're kind of ready for things, we do pretty well. But when we're, I don't know, at home maybe? At least for me? That's where we let our guard down a little bit, and then it is lopping heads off time. I mean, listen, you have ticked me off. You've insulted my ego, my pride, and I'm going to take you out. And that's really where David's at. This is this divergence in his character. And what it really speaks to is that our persistence varies greatly on our perspective, right? So that leads us to this last slide as we look at perspective, and there are really two different types of perspective that I want to pull out that we have. We either have a temporal or earthly perspective, or we have a heavenly or a divine perspective. And our circumstances uh, greatly affect our perspective. So in this story, we see David's circumstances really change the way he looked at things. He was in a good spot where he was able to see God at work, and then he's in a much different spot where he's probably a little hangry, and he's in a, a far different area as he's ready to wipe out all of Nabal and his men. And what it tells me is that we have to have a foundation that our focus really needs to be based in. So for me, I have attended church my entire life. Uh, from a little boy in a Baptist church, I mean, if the doors were open, we were there. Sunday morning for Sunday school, Sunday morning for regular church, Sunday evening, we were there. Wednesdays, we were there all the time. So these stories, boy, I've heard them. I've heard them quite a bit. And I'd attend, you know, Bible studies, Bible schools. If you put Bible in it, we were probably there at it. But for me, where my focus truly was my entire life was in success. I was going to be successful one way or another. I, I probably couldn't have articulated it like that at the time, but I knew that uh, my mission in life was I'm going to go make as much as I can as fast as I can, and I'm going to prove to whoever I was trying to prove something to that I can be successful. And what it led to was that through years of working my way up the corporate ladder and, and job to job, I'd finally ended up at the vice president of a very large billion-dollar corporation uh, in Mattoon, Illinois. And that's where we were. And we were living life, right? Incredibly successful. And to everyone on the outside, you could look in at me and go, man, that guy's got it together. I mean, he's got it going on. Got the big house and the big subdivision. Got a beautiful wife and kids. They've got it all, right? But what was really going on inside is the harder I pursued success, and, and that viewpoint, that vantage point of the temporal, the farther I walked away from the Lord. Because Saturdays became a regular thing for me to work after working 70 hours during the week. So Sunday's my time. That's my time to rest. I don't need to be in here doing this. I mean, I, I know who God is. I understand all that, but I, I don't have the time that other people have. I'm busy. I'm successful, right? So after essentially becoming miserable in that position, a new opportunity presented itself. 
for us to relocate and come to Farmington, Missouri, of all places. So here we are. We come to Farmington, Missouri. And uh, this great business opportunity that I was going to pursue, because keep in mind, success is still very much in the forefront of my mind, turns into complete disaster. Not like a little bit of disaster. I mean, like two days in, this thing is a train wreck like you've never seen. So I, I leave my executive level job and everything I thought I wanted to come to a place where we knew that many people to uh, leave everyone we'd known and loved three and a half hours away to walk into a mess, right? And you talk about a circumstance and a perspective change. So in October of 2015, we were able to uh, attend, albeit begrudgingly on my part, Parkland Chapel, where God began to do a work, at least in me, to change my perspective from the temporal to the heavenly, to the divine. So for the first time in my life, my focus was no longer on how can I make as much. It was, all right, Lord, you got my attention. I understand. Like it, it wasn't all about that after all. It was actually needed to be all about you. And two years later, by miraculous uh, events, I'm sitting here talking to you. I mean, this, this wasn't supposed to happen. Not at all. But that's the work of God doing something and moving us out of a spot. He knew we needed a restart, but it wasn't the restart that I had in mind. Not at all. It was a restart he had in mind. So for our last example, I'd like to look at is in the life of the Apostle Paul. And if you turn to Acts chapter 9, what you'll see is uh, right there you've got Paul's tremendous conversion. So Paul is brought into the Christian faith, leaving a spot of a deeply rooted religion, anything sound familiar here, to then being miraculously converted to the one true and living God as he sees him on this road to Damascus. So Paul gets called into ministry, right? He receives a word from the Lord, sees the living God himself uh, in Jesus Christ, but then what? He's put on the shelf. He's put on the sidelines, It's not until Acts chapter 11 before Paul finally gets his first chance to go out and minister and do the thing he felt called to do in the first place. Fourteen years, he tells us in Galatians chapter 2, it takes for Paul to actually go and get the chance to do the thing that he was originally called to. Now that's some patience, right? That's some patience in the life of the Apostle Paul. So then if we look at uh, 2 Corinthians, sorry to flip so much, uh, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, what Paul says there about this calling and about what he's been through, if we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, he says, And from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I'd spent at sea. That is not what we would call a really successful ministry from the worldly perspective. I mean, this dude has been beaten five times with 39 stripes, right? That's where they stretch your back out over a pole and beat you with a whip 39 times because 40 would be unmerciful. So we're going to give you one less and be merciful. So three times he was beaten with rods, which is what the, where the term getting the third degree 
Now it comes from is this, this practice of being beaten with a rod. One time he was stoned, perhaps to death, and then he's shipwrecked and spends uh, some two weeks out at sea during a storm and then is shipwrecked and in the ocean for a day and a half. So you could say from Paul's side of things, uh, he was persistent, right? He stuck with it. And it does make me ask, you know, as I'm busy lamenting to the Lord, Lord, you've given me so, you know, this challenge and that challenge. Really? I mean, I've yet to be beaten with a rod, at least not that I remember. Uh, You know, I've never been stoned to death, I can't say. But here's Paul, and here's what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, as we look at his perspective, the perspective of the Apostle Paul. In Romans 8, 18, And he says, For I consider the suffering of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. (laughs) So Paul's answer, his perspective was, whatever you're going through at this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that God sees in you and is going to do in you. So where does this faith come from? This tremendous faith that Paul has? Well, back to Acts And we're back to that shipwreck that I was just talking about. And what he says is he's in the middle of this storm that's going on now two weeks in this tempest as they're trying to bring Paul, who's a prisoner, by the way, to Rome so he can appear before Caesar. In chapter 27, verse 25, this is what Paul tells these men as they're in the middle of an awful storm. Therefore, uh, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told to me. Take heart. I believe God and what he told me. So when we're in the middle of that storm, in that spot, trying to persist, trying to have patience, where can we be rooted and grounded? We can take heart, knowing that God is going to do exactly what he said he was going to do in the way that he said he was going to do it. it. It's really the source of where our strength comes from as Christians. So the question we have to ask is, is our faith grounded in this world or is it grounded in the word of God right because if it's grounded in this world it's going to be subject to my emotions whenever I'm feeling good that day boy I'm faithful look at me I'm not going to take out Saul he's in this cave you know I'm having a good day I got all this faith and as soon as things turn the other way though I get a hangnail I get beaten with a rod Whatever happens in my life, as soon as that thing turns the other direction, my faith just goes. But if it's rooted in the word of God, if it's rooted in the fact that he's going to do what he says he's going to do, that's where our faith really uh, takes its true hold on our lives, right? It's grounded in Jesus, who always stays the course. So, while it's so easy to get frustrated, aggravated, overcomplicated, agitated, I'm running out of aideds, I don't have any other ones, or I put it in there right now, especially in light of this Christmas season where it seems like we're on edge with everything, right? There's not, there's not enough sleep to go around. I've got four kids, and it seems like, I was telling Travis earlier, it seems like somebody in my house is always awake. I don't know how, but one of them is always up for something, right? So it's easy to get that way. But if we flip back again and look at Isaiah, just reading that last verse one more time, 
to close and think about this. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Folks, that right there is prophecy in our lives about what is to come. All right? We're not there yet. But now he's talking about our glorified bodies and what we're looking forward to, our hope, which is rooted in heaven, that we will renew our strength. The only thing that we have to do that's operative for us in this verse is one word, wait, right? Because everything else that it's talking about, mounting up on wings like eagles, God does that. Uh, We run and don't go weary, God does that. We walk and we don't faint, God does all that. He's talking about us being glorified at the end of this age where we move on. That's really where our hope lies. That's where our faith is grounded in Jesus Christ. Okay, So that's what I wanted to leave you with in this holiday season when we're in the middle of, of all these storms and it feels like we're being blown this way and that, is that when we wait on the Lord, we find our true strength. Amen. So, Father, thank you so much for Arcadia Valley Chapel. Thank you for the folks that are gathered here today. They are exactly the people you wanted here today. And I thank you that we know that, that the ones that are here should be here, and the word that was supposed to go out uh, went out. Thank you for uh, Travis and Allegra and Vic and what they, uh, what they represent, which is really a calling uh, that they had on their life, that they are going after as hard as they can. And thank you for what that means uh, to somebody like me that gets to see it from time to time. I praise you for them. And uh, again, we thank you uh, for this place. We thank you for this gathering. And we thank you for your word and the promise that is in this word that never fails, that, that you never go back on. So all this we praise you for in the name of Jesus. Amen.